Trades with your host, John X. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the John of All Trades podcast, episode 328. Your host, John X. Thank you for joining us. Glad to have you back once again. And on this week's show, I am proud to spotlight an organization to which I have given money for a number of years. That organization is the Blue Bench, Metro Denver's only comprehensive sexual assault prevention and support center. They do a lot of work. There is no other organization like this in the area. I am proud to support them, and I've got their executive director on the show, Megan Carvajal. So, on this week's show, we talk about what does comprehensive sexual assault prevention and support look like? Sometimes they are working directly with victims and helping them navigate the trauma of surviving a sexual assault. Sometimes it has to do with prevention. Sometimes it's working with law enforcement, with school systems, with other governmental agencies. There's a ton of work here. And as Megan and I say in this show, we wish this organization didn't have to exist. We wish we lived in a society where sexual assault and sexual violence simply didn't happen. As we all know, that's not the case. So I'm grateful that they do exist and that they are so comprehensive in their approach to what they do. Now, before we go any further, this is a conversation that could be triggering for some. We're talking about sexual assault. We're talking about sexual violence. So I'm going to play a message from the end of this episode. This appears, you'll hear this twice, near the end of this episode when Megan is talking about the plugs. Where can you find the blue bench? And I want to put it right here so you have it for reference. If for whatever reason you need the support of the blue bench, here's a message from her on how to get in touch with them. Thebluebench.org. That is um, where you start, and um, I think it is really important to right up front say we have a 24-hour hotline. So even if listening to this podcast has triggered something for sure. one of your listeners, give us a call 24-7, We also have that line in Spanish, and it is on our website. Um, if you've experienced an assault and you need to go to the hospital, call us. We will meet you at the hospital. An advocate will join you and walk you through that journey. If you need therapy, case management, start with that hotline. Give us a call. Um, we really are here to start where the survivor needs to start. We're going to start by listening. We're going to start by believing that someone has had an experience, and we're going to help you navigate that. You can also find that information on the companion blog piece that's at johnofalltrades.us, J-O-N, of all trades.us or in the show notes. So just open this up on whatever podcast platform you're listening on, whether that's iTunes or Stitcher or Pandora or Spotify, whatever. You can find the links that Megan gave you right there. On a personal note, I'd just like to add that I really hit it off with Megan. She and I, as soon as we started talking, we were like on the same wavelength, same vibe. We were like two peas in a pod. It was great. And the fact that we can have a conversation like this that touches on so many important things and work that is vital to a community, to survivors, while still enjoying each other's company, I think is part and parcel to a society in which we all want to live. So, Megan, thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for the Blue Bench. I'm proud to spotlight you here, so let's get to it. Episode 328 of the John of All Trades podcast features Megan Carvajal. 
She is the executive director of The Blue Bench. Her episode starts right now. Uh, I listen to podcasts. Okay. Uh, I listen to Audible instruction. I'm really into Mel Robbins right now. Okay. Who's Mel Robbins? Mel Robbins is a... Um, she is an Enneagram seven. So she's just like this enthusiastic person who realized that she had unique ways of motivating people out of things that they get stuck in, like worry, productivity, and was like, Hey, I figured out some shit. So I'm going to share it with everybody else. Nice. And it's all simple stuff, but it's things that like people don't want to tell us because it'll hurt our feelings. (laughs) Like what? (laughs) Like, why are you worrying? What if it all works out? I mean, if my wife said that to me, I'd be like, yeah. you can shut up now. But Mel Robbins saying... It's like, thanks for the tip. Yeah. It's like, oh, right. What if it does work all, all work out? <laughs> I needed to hear that. So, shit it, like that. It, it reminds me of what I say to my kids sometimes. I'm mm-hmm. like, have you considered just spending five minutes apart? Yes. You know, like, because you are up in each other's business yes. so much yeah. that it would be nice if you... And they go, yeah, but we don't like that. And I go, <laughs> it's true. So you have kids, you get it. Like my yeah. drive from Longmont to Lakewood is silence. Oh, geez. Yeah. It's 45 minutes of my own time. Okay. Well, okay. That's not nothing. So mm-hmm. I work from home. But <laughs> so when I get in the car I'm and the kids aren't in there, I'm playing the music very, very loud. I enjoy that. Mm-hmm. That's, me too. Um, and for me, I don't know if you're this way, but that's, I listen to punk rock because it is the lousy, loudest noisiest, most cacophonous music on earth. Mm. That's where I finally get some elbow room in my brain because I don't have room for all the spirals that I'm constantly doing. Yeah. That I, really, really helps. I get it. That's why I spend so much time with Dave Grohl on my radio. It's nice, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Foo Fighters are, that's the great, it's a great way to code shift oh. from work to home and home Code work. shift. <laughs> <laughs> that's the first time I've heard that in that context. Yeah. That's pretty good. Yeah. Sad about Taylor Hawkins, though. Oh, devastated. My God. I'm just Busted. Yeah. Was going to see them here in August. Ah, oh, no. Going to AJR here in June. That yeah. should be a good show. Yeah. Um, oh. I've heard good things about them. But it's funny. So this is Megan Carvajal, and she is the executive director of the Blue Bench, an organization that I have supported for a number of years now. Thank you. Of course. Happy to do it. And it, 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 it's so funny when doing this show because I'll be like... I need guest ideas. And it's like, it's right in front of your face, dummy. Like, here's an organization you really like that you've supported. Why not spotlight them on this platform that you've had for eight years? So here we are finally. Yay. Thanks, John. Yeah. And <laughs> we, we did like, uh, we met for the first time over Zoom like a week ago. Yep. And we hit it off just immediately. It Absolutely. seems like we have the same We're vibe. We're best friends now. <laughs> That's, that makes me happy. <laughs> it makes like, me happy too. What a, what a way to do a Friday as we yeah. record this. But so here we are sitting in your office. For anyone who doesn't know what the Blue Bench is, let's start with you giving the elevator pitch for it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And thanks for having me. Of course. Uh, so the Blue Bench is Metro Denver's only comprehensive uh, assault, sexual assault center. So we support anyone who has experienced a sexual assault, sexual violence, sexual harassment, have experienced trauma from that. Maybe they need therapy. Mm. Um, They need case management, navigating um, what happens after an assault. Could be they need um, an advocate to assist them at the hospital if they are to get um, an exam post-assault. Okay, yeah. Um, Groups, art therapy. We do a lot of prevention education, so... Um, we're going to talk about consent today. I'm sure it's yeah. our most uh, disruptive topic, but we have a that goal. That makes me sad. I know. That, that that 
that consent, something as easy as consent. I know. Should, should be that disruptive. We even talk, my girls are seven and five. We talk about it because they'll be up in each other's business. And it's like, look, she said no. All right. Get off her. Leave her alone. That's her, right. her body is hers. Leave her alone. When she says no, that means you get off. Mm-hmm. And, and she goes, oh, okay. And so like we're teaching them that this early. Absolutely. That's so important because yeah. when you and I were young, I don't know about you, but I have a brother. And if we're roughhousing, it's just like, oh, that's just how kids are. <laughs> right. Even if I'm saying no, it's like, oh, he's, he doesn't mean anything. Yeah. No, there's right? yeah, no harm yeah, done here. Like, but, but there it, is. Yeah. Th- there is because like you're, you're violating someone's wishes. Yes. And that's, that's not okay. You're sending the message that yeah. saying no isn't always no. Yeah, yeah. It's like, uh, you know, they're just playing around, whatever. Let it, yep. No, don't let it slide. I know. No, I One of the things that you and I connected on last week was the enthusiastic yes. Enthusiastic yeah. yes. Um, we talk a lot about consent is not the absence of no, but the presence of enthusiastic yes. Yeah. You got to teach that when they're five. That's And that's really important, too. I think, I mean, we're talking about sexual assault here. Yes. And one of the things that we don't teach in school that is part and parcel to an enthusiastic yes is we don't teach enough about pleasure. It's true. We don't talk about sex positivity. Right. And we still limit sex to this very one biblical act. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. It is a, it is this is the biblical definition of sex. That's not just sex is a lot of different things. It's a lot of different activities and ways that you connect with each other and and uh, we should teach kids about that. We yeah. should teach kids about making safe and healthy choices. You shouldn't be doing it through gritted teeth. That's right. You know, so like the... You and I are not gritting our teeth. No. (laughs) Well, we're not. We're also not having sex. That's true. We are not. So, but I mean, that should be true of most things, like most social exchanges. Yes. Um, And so the enthusiastic yes, you're right, is not the absence of a no. It's like, well, all right. It's like, yeah, I'm down. We're both here. Let's do this. Mm -hmm. Let's make it happen. Like that's, that's what it should be. But because we don't teach pleasure, because America has some puritanical shame kind Mm -hmm. of baked into it. Oh, yeah. That it's hard to get there just because we don't teach enough about that. It's true. Is that part of what goes into your curriculum? Or are we talking about... I mean, because that's, that's more like a systemic fix to a problem that exists. Yes. And so, I mean, that is important, but you're also filling in a gap that otherwise isn't filled by something else. That's right. It's, it's a gap that's still not filled by a lot of parents. Right. Right. So we are we are challenging schools to let us help them create this aspect of social emotional learning we in prevention we don't just say don't do this right it's like here are all the ways that you can have a healthy relationship here's what boundaries look like here's what it means to be a bystander if you see something Mm. happening to a friend of yours here's how to safely intervene so it's not just giving kids a it's not giving girls this perception that Girls are at risk, so we need to teach girls how to protect themselves. Yeah. So we're not out there handing out rape whistles and um, pepper spray. Right. Right. We're trying to help kids understand that the feelings that they have are normal. The way that they act on those feelings can show up in different ways. So here's how to navigate this time in your life yeah. and build a foundation for healthy relationships going forward. That, that whole conversation is so frustrating to me. It's like, here's how you prevent a rape. It's like, no, oh. no. Like, well, okay, fine. Like self-defense is a good lesson to Absolutely. have. Absolutely. Irrespective of context. Mm-hmm. Like there, there are monsters out there. But we need to be teaching boys not to rape. Yeah. Like that, that to me is the bigger part of the equation 
the, the bigger part of the conversation that's not happening. It's like, oh, you know, uh, you'll, you'll read about school dress codes or something. It's like, you know, this girl's showing her shoulders and the boys can't control themselves. That is nonsense. That is ludicrous on its face. Yeah. It's like, no, women and girls should be allowed to wear whatever they want. And not get raped and not be afraid of getting raped. Absolutely. I would even go so far to say is we should ungender that and that any Fair. any youth individual should be able to dress comfortably the way that they feel expresses their identity mm. and shouldn't feel threatened by what they're wearing as I am now potentially a victim of sexual, even harassment. We're not even talking about rape. We're just talking about yeah. unwanted touches, unwanted um bullying through social media, um, spreading rumors about somebody because of how they look, what they wear. Yeah. That's all related. Yeah, no, that makes good sense to me. It's frustrating to me, and, and I think you'll take this in the spirit with which it's intended, Yeah, that this organization has to exist at all. I agree. I would love to work myself out of a job. Yeah. My dream is for us to not to have to exist to do this work anymore. That's not the world you and I will live in. No. But what we're doing is trying to create that world for our kids. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, That's why I, we're doing it. I agree 100%, which is one of the reasons I am so proud to support this organization. So I want to go back uh, yeah. a little bit to my origin story with this. Please. It's a freezing night in Park Hill, just brutally, blisteringly cold. We get a knock at the door. So anytime someone's knocking on your door, like with when weather is like that, mm-hmm. you go, oh, I better answer this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it turns out it's a representative from the Blue Bench mm-hmm. doing door-to-door canvassing, which yeah. I have a history in. I've worked in campaigns. I've... I think everyone should have to take a turn doing some door-to-door canvassing mm. for like a week. I think the whole world would be nicer to understand what that's like because yeah. it's hard. It's really it hard. It is hard. Yeah. And so she told us, we invited her in. <clears throat> um, we go, yeah. Like, and so we got the checkbook out. We wrote her a check right there. She used our bathroom. We poured her some hot tea and we've been supporting you ever since. Mm. So when we were talking initially, you mentioned you've sort of wound down that program. Yeah. Um, can you talk about, first of all, why that model is still or was still successful for you? Because mm-hmm. clearly you roped us in. Um, yeah. And then what ultimately led to you winding it down? Yeah, sure. So we were founded in 1983 by uh, a few individuals who had a friend who experienced a sexual assault and they realized there was really no support in the metro mm-hmm. area. And they started a hotline and they were like, how are we going to fund a hotline? Yeah. And that's how the canvassing program became. It was like, let's raise money and tell people we have a hotline that can help you. And that has grown the organization for years. And, you know, that was 1983. You and I were little. Mm -hmm. Knocking on people's door was really safe. Remember muscular dystrophy? People would come around with their (laughs) little cans collecting (laughs) coins. I, I did that. I remember the Fuller Brush Man coming to my house yes. in the 80s. Yeah. So it started within the culture that the 80s existed, Yeah, that right? makes sense. Sure. And um, when the pandemic hit, we were already wondering, is this still a safe way for us to do outreach and raise money? Oh, yeah. Oh, pandemic. Of course. You know? And then the <laughs> pandemic hit, and it was like, we can't do any of it. Mm. So it naturally sunsetted. Okay. And now that we're coming out of the pandemic, we're trying to figure out what is that um, sweet spot Mm -hmm. of still doing that outreach and having that door-to-door experience without putting a bunch of canvassers in a position where they may be at higher risk or people aren't as comfortable with having their doors knocked on anymore. And and that's a big thing. I mean, I don't like to answer my door when it's knocked (laughs) anymore. Well, talking about when we grew up, it's if you tell this to someone who's like, 
14 years old, you will absolutely melt their face. I know. <laughs> which is like, it, and it's, your phone used to ring. And you didn't know who was on the other end. That's and you'd, right. you'd just pick it up. That's right. And like if you waited for an important call, you'd have to sit in your house and wait for it. Oh, yeah. And, Did you have the phone <clears throat> that was clear and lit up? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't. Um, but we had that same cordless phone that everyone has. Oh, yeah. You know, so... And cordless phones, man, that was a nice thing. Yeah. Oh, it was such a big deal. Yeah, you could walk, you know, thirty feet away from your phone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whereas before, you know, you'd be tied to this cord wherever Wrapped you. Wrapped up in a cord. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so you tell people that, and they go, "Wow, what a weird world to live in." And in many ways, it was sort of better because when I worked in corporate PR, I managed our charitable giving portfolio, so I used to get pitches all the time. Mm-hmm. You never knew exactly what you were going to get, and I used to take all sorts of weird meetings just because I'm like, I don't know where the next good idea is going to come from. Sure. Why not? And now, I, th- I think about this with music too. Like, do you have the Pandora app? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Pandora is great because it sends me a never-ending conveyor belt of stuff I already like. Yep. That's nice, but sort of unfulfilling in a lot of ways. Mm. So when you didn't know who was coming to your door, who was calling your phone, there was an element of mystery that made life a little bit more whimsical. Yes. So, like yes. for instance, on a cold night, a representative from the Blue Bench knocks on my mm. door, tells us your mission, and I go. I don't know that I would have found this on my own otherwise. That's really cool. So in addition to the canvassing, how all, like working as a nonprofit, Mm -hmm. what are your fundraising activities? Like how do you keep the lights on here and do the work that is necessary to help sexual assault survivors? Yeah. Thanks for asking that. We are very um, lucky to receive government funding. Hmm. Um, There are some great government programs that are really focused on um, preventing violence. And so that largely helps us run our counseling and case management program. I'll just say it. Nobody wants to give money to prevention. And we're not going to end sexual violence unless we prevent sexual violence. So we raise money through general ops, individual donations. We have a really good direct mail campaign. We have special fundraising events that help us keep prevention running smoothly. We could be doing a lot more. We could be doing a lot more prevention if people really realize, like, this is something we need to put money into. Yeah. I I always told the organizations that I was working for, because especially if you go out to companies, they always want to put their name on some sort of new program or something. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I go, make sure whatever we're giving you, some of that goes to your general fund. Absolutely. And so they were always like super grateful for that because, you know, it's like, okay, yeah, we fund programs, but we have people here who are doing the work that make those programs go. And no one wants to fund that because it's unglamorous. It's Yeah, that's right. It's not fun. It's not sexy. And yet... We can't do our work without it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that was my philosophy. It made me very popular with the nonprofits. But not, Absolutely. <laughs> but not so much with my corporate leadership. Yep. Because it's mm-hmm. like, okay, see, we're giving all this money. You know, what are we getting? It's like, what are we getting? Okay. You're keeping the lights on for an organization. Yeah. That's a big for, deal. for an organization doing really important work, mm-hmm. that should be good enough. Like, our names are there. We get to go to their galas or their golf tournaments or whatever it is that they have. Yes. But also... We're doing this for the sake of supporting the work, not mm-hmm. for our own benefit. And yeah. a lot of times companies kind of forget that too. Yeah. I get challenged. Uh, I used to be a nonprofit consultant. And ah. um, yeah, I lo- it's, it was the best. I loved it. Um, because I got to help organizations make decisions that they were too deep in the weeds to make themselves. Mm. And I can't tell you how many times I got the question, should we have a gala? <laughs> no. <laughs> and this is related to um, the Blue Bench. 
I'll tie it back. Yeah. Because a gala centers the donor. Yeah. Right? It centers the person with power and privilege who can give the money and they want this experience. Mm -hmm. We have got to change that mentality. If we center the mission and the survivors and focus on what our community needs, then the donors and the investors, like the ones that we have, we have a really great group of funders and donors who believe in centering the mission first. Oh, nice. And I think that's really special about the Blue Bench, but... A gala. I can't go to another gala. John, I can't do it. <laughs> I, I bought a tuxedo. <laughs> oh, no. Like, I literally outright bought one because, you know, we would buy these tables when I was at the corporate gig. Oh, yeah. And yeah. you can't have an empty table. That's a terrible, terrible look. Terrible. I can't tell you how many times I've filled seats for a table. <clears throat> oh, my God. Yeah. Like, and so I would be like, I would just call up my friends. Yes. Who I, you know, and we'd have people from the company there. It's like, oh, so who are you? How do you? And I'm like, Okay, we got to make something up here. Yeah, mm-hmm. like because and and we would have friends who would donate too. Of you, course, you know. So like, yeah. you don't want to be that table either. That's true. They serve a purpose. We just don't need a thousand of them. No, I mean, I was going to one, probably two a month. Ooh, it was a lot. You know, yeah, and, you're popular. Uh, well, it was a big company. <laughs> we'll talk about it off mic. I don't mention them anymore here. Uh, <laughs> um, but you mentioned you get some government funding. Yeah, one of the things. Um, I'm interested in talking about is the way in which, and dealing with nonprofits, I see this a lot. And we talked about this a little bit in our initial call Mm -hmm. is the service that you're providing feels like it shouldn't have to be outsourced to a nonprofit. Sure. Right. So, you know, this, this is sort of part of the social safety net. There's, there's always going to be creeps and monsters and criminals Mm -hmm. and jerks and Mm -hmm. terrible people out there. Sure. Right. So people making bad decisions. Right. So the, this feels like a service that should be provided to uh, an advanced citizenry to a civilization that mm-hmm. allegedly has evolved, yeah. yet isn't. Yeah. <clears throat> so it's part of the privatization of the social safety net. Sure. Um, do you have thoughts on that? Well, yes. <laughs> I, I'm certain you do, <laughs> in the context of your organization. Yeah. I mean, so I'm a, I'm a systems person. I want to change things also at the institutional and the, in the system. Yeah, systemic level. Systemic sure. Systemic level. And so my big answer to that is I agree that we should have a social safety net. And if we do the work from birth, mm. that social safety net would not feel like the lift that it would feel like right now <laughs> right. if we just said, hey, government, we're going to ask you to build this safety net and it's going to be giant because of all of these things that we have not yet fixed. Right, which is back to my point, we can't have services without prevention. We no. have to be doing both at the same time. I would love to, I would love to live in a world where we mitigate risk of sexual violence in the future and we have an infrastructure in place yeah. that supports people and removes every barrier. There are so many barriers for survivors. Okay, give me an example of some barriers. Yeah. So, um I'm in a, I have a partner who maybe I'm not married to. We rent an apartment together. I experience intimate partner sexual violence. I've lost my housing. I'm mm. now experienced a traumatic event. Now I can't work for a month. Yeah. I've lost my job. So now I've lost my job. I'm sleeping on someone's couch. I've had this traumatic experience. I have to go to the Blue Bench, if I live in Metro Denver, um, to get help. Mm-hmm. The Blue Bench is understaffed and underfunded because all nonprofits are. Yeah. We have a wait list. I maybe I have to wait four weeks to get a case manager. 
The case manager then has to learn my case, then has to help me find housing, maybe help me get my job back or find another job. The time that that takes. So now we're talking about, what, six months, maybe a year to the time that someone has experienced an assault, lost their housing, lost their job, lost their partner who they thought was safe. So all of these barriers could be erased. And meanwhile, trying to navigate day-to-day life. Yes, still trying to, like, just stay alive. Yeah. Just, like, I, I have to survive this somehow. And... And I don't, we don't even need to get into all the statistics of like um, unaliving, right? right. Oh, they, sure. Right. Yeah. So we're also creating the space for people to doubt themselves, to doubt their worth, to feel like they have no one and no body. If we had a social safety net where someone walked in or made a phone call and said, I experienced right. this, here are the challenges, right away, we would reduce the cost on that person, on the nonprofit, on the government funding the nonprofit. If that social safety net was in place right away. Yeah. So all those barriers start to exist the second someone experiences a traumatic event. Oh, good Lord. That, I mean, hearing you describe that, that's a waking nightmare. If, if, yes. you, if you can put yourself empathetically in, I mean, if, if you're fortunate enough not to have uh, experienced sexual assault. Yes. And you can put yourself in those shoes. I mean, it, it's immediately apparent that you go, why do we exist like this? Yeah. Like why yeah. <clears throat> it's it's unfathomable. Well, think about privilege. Okay, so let's say that person has a lot of money. Maybe they have a lot of resources. Maybe oh. they have a family that can help them through, pay for therapy right away. They don't need to go the nonprofit route. Yeah, that's great. I experienced sexual assault as a small child, and then as a young adult, um, I received a message from a friend's brother that was very. It was sexual harassment in writing, mm. and. I had all the resources available to me because it triggered my trauma. I didn't have to go to a nonprofit. I could afford to go to therapy, right? I myself carry the privilege of being able to address that right away. Sure. We're talking about people who have been historically not able to have the same resources that the rest of us are so privileged to have. So we're not just talking about access to services for anybody. We're talking about access to services for people who have already been set up to not have support in place. Right. And when you talk about systemic change, one of the things that occurs to me is two two examples of the fairly recent past come to mind. Mm -hmm. One is a perpetrator of sexual assault gets his swimming times written up in the news article about him mm-hmm. sexually assaulting, raping a woman. Mm-hmm. That's what the narrative ultimately becomes. It, it's about the loss of his opportunity, yep. right? And then you think about someone like uh, a recent Supreme Court justice um, has accusations leveled at him, mm-hmm. claims his life has been ruined, mm-hmm. yet... It's his victim mm-hmm. that has to have security detail. Her life is actually ruined. He still gets to serve on the Supreme Court. That's right. So in terms of what, what I hear you describing is there is sort of a micro element to this where you are helping survivors in Metro Denver navigate the systems and the challenges in those systems in which they exist. How much of your work is that versus changing the larger cultural narrative and how much impact can you have on that when we're talking about the two cases that I mentioned? Yeah. One of the things that we have to do as an organization that we're doing right now is we have to challenge our own power and privilege. Mm-hmm. We have to understand um, what justice, what equity, inclusion, and belonging uh, really mean, and how do we lead with that 
first. Yeah. We believe the survivor first. Yes. And the two examples that you gave and the way that even the way that you told the story, let me know right away. You're talking about two people with a lot of privilege and power. Yeah. Right. So we have to challenge that ourselves. I mean, I'm the executive director of a nonprofit. I have a lot of privilege and power. And I want to be the person that challenges that narrative and leverages my power for this kind of work versus my celebrity status. Yeah. Right. You're talking about celebrity status and the rights that they have Mm -hmm. because of the position they hold. So we are trying to challenge that dynamic. It's a very hard, long road. Yeah. And I have an amazing staff who are constantly walking this line with us and challenging us and very much me um, and the ways of how do we break down hierarchy? How do we center people who are not in positions of power and elevate their voice? These are all, this is all work that we have to do. We all have to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And I interviewed a professor. He is the head of the communications department at, I believe it's Missouri state. Mm -hmm. I can't remember where he is now, but he wrote about the ascendancy of former president Trump. Mm. And one of his hypotheses or hypotheses about that was the decentering of white masculinity in culture, which I thought was a really interesting way. I like, I hadn't heard it phrased that concisely before. And I thought that's interesting because Mm -hmm. as soon as, Straight, white, cisgendered American men. Like you. Exactly. Yeah. Like me. I won the demographic lottery. Yeah. Like literally. that <laughs> The whole world was, was built for people like me. Yes. And I think Amy Schumer, it might be Amy Schumer has a joke. It's like, look, if you're a straight white dude and you're not succeeding, <laughs> my God, you have failed <laughs> on, a, on such an epic level. My qu- So as soon as some of that starts to erode under you know, that demographic's feet, yeah. you can see them get very, very uncomfortable with it. Yeah. My, my question to you is, in terms of someone like me, how can we be advocates? How can we be allies to creating a society that I think we would all like to see? Yeah. Because you'll hear, and this is so stupid when you hear men say this, it's like, you know, we all have mothers, we all have wives. It's like, well, yeah, we should also just live in a fucking society. Yeah. Well, I would say, like, do you really know what your mothers and wives go through? Are you making no. assumptions? Have you asked how hard it is to be a woman in our society? Have you asked your best friend who is a person of color, what is it really like to live in a society and, and be my friend and know that I have more power than you? So I during the Me Too, when mm-hmm. that was right in the middle, mm-hmm. I, I asked my wife about it. And there were two things that came up that I'd never even thought of. One was, and I've told this story on the show before, but one was I switched the, the keyless entry on my car to mm-hmm. unlock all the doors at once. And she goes, oh, you never do that. And I go, uh, why? And she goes, are you kidding? You can't let someone just get into your car. You only unlock your one door. That is the fear we live with every day. Right. And mm-hmm. I go, holy crap. That's something I just take for granted. I didn't like pressing a button twice to throw my bag in the back seat. Right. Yeah. That's something I don't even have to think about. And she goes, and uh, another one, you never get an apartment on the first floor. That's right. And I go, oh, my God. Again, like I've had apartments on the first floor. I don't care. It doesn't like it's not something I have to worry about really. Yeah. And so I go, whoa, like there is so much unseen privilege that I have that I just take for granted. Sure. Is that kind of what you're alluding to? Yeah. The the, um, example that I thought of when I was probably in high school, I remember there was this big like national news story about people um, 
carjacking by hiding under people's cars when they were pumping gas. Okay, wow. Right? And I was a new driver, and I was pumping gas by myself, and I saw this new story, and I have carried that fear with me my entire life. It is, like, still subconsciously there. I don't think that my brother saw that news story and worried at all. Yeah, sure. If his ankle was going to get grabbed, he was going to get thrown in his car and taken away and never to be seen again. <sighs> yeah. So you got to ask. Yeah. So back to your question. Like, as a person such as yourself who is not thinking about these scary things, if you want to change the dynamic, if you want to change the conversation, you have to do your own work. You do things like read a book. My favorite recommendation is season two of Seen on Radio, mm. Seeing White. It is a game changer, at least for me, for I think white people. Um, and then you have to be brave enough to talk about your buds with it. Ah, yes. Right? You have to, when your bud says something that's a little bit sexist or racist, you have to say something. Yeah. You just got to be brave, dude. You've give, been given the privilege of bravery. Yeah, there's there's a particular epithet directed at the lgbtq community absolutely starts with f you can probably guess it yep um i had a friend this was years ago too just sort of refer to something like that's meaning lame right oh sure and i go dude that's really uncool like please don't do that anymore and he's like i don't mean it in that i go i know you don't yeah but we're in public man there's probably someone around who you've now made feel like less than full or less than mm -hmm. human. Mm -hmm. You have now put them into a class and kids are killing themselves because they hear that so much. Absolutely. I don't think he does it anymore. So you're right. And believe me, I didn't enjoy having that conversation. That was not no. fun to do. No, but you're the only person probably in his life who could say it to him because right. yes. you reflect Good call. him, right? It's like you've got that privilege of reflecting to someone else. Yeah. Like, you look just like me and you're telling me something I did is wrong. It's the intent versus impact. You can say like, I know you didn't intend it. Totally. The impact yeah. is this. So next time, just think about that. Yeah. And you have changed the conversation. Right. And so that's an interesting sort of way you flip the script on privilege, too, because it's like privilege can be used for good yes. in that way. Like, we're pals, man. That's the like, only way it should be used. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well played. <laughs> that is indeed the only way privilege should be used. Yeah. You're, you're sitting in this position where you can affect someone's life for the good and the positive. So you, you bring them up that way. Yep. Wow. Okay. So <clears throat> you are executive director of this organization. You have to wear many, many hats. Yes. And you have a lot of things to do. Yeah. Take me through some of the tasks that you have to do, either on a daily or weekly or monthly, however you want to break it down yeah. is okay with me. But how do you balance the multiple things you do? And give us a snapshot of what that's like. Mm -hmm. That is such an interesting question. So I mentioned earlier, I used to be a nonprofit consultant and really I know another nonprofit consultant she's been on the show too that's awesome I'd love to meet her yeah it's great work because you get to be a part of another nonprofit story mm -hmm. and my favorite thing to do was working with executive directors CEOs and their leadership teams helping them you know change the conversation around leadership and and kind of move into this next phase of how they're going to lead I thought I knew it would, what it was like to be an executive director because I worked with so many of them mm -hmm. and I have so many of them that are mentors I cannot tell you <laughs> the <laughs> typical tasks <laughs> because it is such a jack of all trades. Mm. Unless you are coming into a nonprofit where your role is to be the social worker and oversee a social work program, 
Otherwise, you have to be a generalist. Yeah. You have to be ready for anything that comes your way. So, like, I'm working on an audit right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also trying to hire three positions. I am attending these big meetings where we talk about what's happening in our community with the DA's office, the you know, Denver Police Department, um, the people who run our SANE program. So I'm sitting in community meetings. Um, half of my time, I'm reading about the scary shit that's happening in our world and trying to think of with my partner, David, who is our director of communications, how do we get ahead of this? What is our role in responding Mm. to what's happening in the world? Because think about this, anything that happens in the news triggers a survivor. Sure. Gun violence, news of a celebrity rape, loss of uh, an entire program that the city has dropped because they don't have the money for it anymore. Right. Anything that is related could trigger a survivor. So we're, I'm always thinking about what's going to happen next. What do we need to be prepared for? How are we going to protect the people who are hurt the most? Yeah. My job, I see my job as I help the people who help the people. So I'm really focused on our team, our staff, our therapists, our case managers, our educators. Um, what did they need to be ready to support survivors? Yeah. I had a conversation with one of my colleagues the other day. And she asked me about, like, what do you do when you unplug at 530, you know, when you leave? And I was like, I don't unplug. (laughs) My job is not to unplug. I get up in the morning, 637, look at my email. Has anything happened? Are there any news alerts? Did a survivor reach out and something terrible happened and we need to respond? I do the same thing at at 9 to 10 at night. Check my email. Check the news. Make sure everything's okay. I'm not bragging. I'm not complaining. I'm just saying like, this is the job. It's part of the job. It's not, I'm happy to do it. Um, but it's exhausting. Well then, okay. And it's a privilege. (laughs) Let me ask you that question in a different way. Yeah. How do you handle self care? Because Mm. that that's a heavy burden to carry. Yeah. And I mean, doing an audit is really boring and really unglamorous in a lot of ways, Yeah, but necessary. Oh, and it's so much work. It's an incredible amount of work. Yeah. That, I mean, there are people whose jobs are just auditors. Yeah. Right? There are people whose jobs are to be the public face of something. Yes. Right? And so you're doing all of those things. Yeah. And so you mentioned you start at 630 till you go to bed. You're sort of on all the time. Yeah. You got to handle self-care. Absolutely. What do you do? When I started this job, so I've been in this role for 14 months, 15 months, um, my dad got really sick. Mm. I ended up going back to Texas and with my stepmom caring for him for 21 days until he died. And so I was new to this job three months in. Wow. And uh, came back. A couple of months went by, tried to focus on my job, didn't do a really good job of self-care. First week of October, I had a heart attack. Oh, my God. I know. I'm 46. Wow. And, um, or I was 40, no, I was 45 at the time. Mm-hmm. That's important at this age. <laughs> and, Brim uh, full of Asha and a 45. That's, that's right. <laughs> now that's going to be my earworm for the rest of the day. Yeah, I, oh, and that song is so bad. Like in term, it's not, it's a great You're song. You're going to have to play it on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to get sued. No, you uh, don't. No, I don't, I don't play licensed music on here. Yeah, so. that's good. So, um, I had a, um, I had a, um, realization I didn't have the heart attack because my dad died or because of this job. It's a genetic condition. But it it forced me to say, you're at the age where you can't just say that you do self-care anymore. Yeah. You got to actually do it. I started therapy. 
processing my own trauma around sexual assault. Can't recommend EMDR as a modality for therapeutic trauma healing enough. Is that the one with the lights? Yeah, it can be lights. It can be vibration. It can be noise, sound, music. You're like rewiring neural pathways, right? Yes. Okay. The way that I describe it is like it's a gentle flossing of the brain. Oh. It's like if you could imagine the comfort of something really soft and wonderful going through your ears, through your brain, it's just this soothing way for your brain to rewire. I'm familiar with it only because clinical way of saying it. I read um, Adam Caton Holland's book where he he's a local comedian here. Mm. Um, He had a show on True TV. He's great. Um, I had him on my show. It was like episode 50. But in his book, after his sister committed suicide, Mm. he was working through a lot. And it wasn't just that, as you said. You know, it all comes up. it, It all comes up. Yeah. And so he went through that and felt uh, measurably better Absolutely. as a result of that. Absolutely. So. I really buckled down. I stopped saying that I do yoga and I really buckled down to do yoga. Kundalini yoga is my favorite. Mm. It's, um, you know, there's a gong involved often, which is <laughs> nice. really wonderful. And I was forced to say, okay, I'm not going to be, speaking of roadblocks that even like anybody has to face, especially women, like I'm going to stop caring about like exercise and diet. And I'm just going to take care of the body that I was given because mm. I want to be around for a long time. Yeah. And I, I do that in little ways all day long, but now I have an awareness of it. You know, I don't just talk about it. Yoga is my, it's my place. So I got to get back into yoga. I was doing, it was called DDP yoga. DDP is a former professional wrestler. Diamond Dave something? Diamond Dallas Page. Diamond Dallas, yes. Yeah. And originally it was called YRG. It was yoga for regular guys. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, You probably saw the infomercials then. Like, yes. So I know a guy who went through this and it changed his life. It's great. Yeah. Um, I, I was really flexible, lost a lot of weight. Uh, kind of fell off with it. And now I'm doing mostly like Orange Theory and other stuff. Sure. But it's sort of, he, he stripped out a lot of the spirituality, mm-hmm. but he says that he's taking out a brand of spirituality and replacing it with his own sort of brand of it, I think. Sure. I mean, because sure. you can't... His own way of motivating people who think like him. Right. Yeah. Because, I mean, you can't do yoga without getting a little bit spiritual about yourself because all of a sudden you can bend in ways that you previously couldn't. That's right. right. And so all of a sudden your body is expanding. And by virtue of doing that, your mind and your soul are expanding too. Yeah. And yoga challenges perfection. Oh, God. Yes. Right. Because you get in a position, and you're like, I'm not doing this right. It's not, that's not what it's about. No. It, so it is challenging that spirituality, that core in you that says, if you're not doing this right, you're wrong. Yeah. And yoga's like, there is no right or wrong. You mm. just keep doing it. You, yeah, you just get a little bit better each time. Yes. And that's that's really, really nice. And it, it got harder for me once I had, right before we got on, we were talking about our various nerve damage. Oh, yeah. You know, like a couple of <laughs> glamorous. A couple of 40-year-olds, <laughs> Yeah, do. that's right. And so yoga became much harder for me because I can't balance the same on my right foot the way I used to. Yep. And I think I just need to rewire how, like how my balance works in that. Yes. But that's hard, man. Like that, you know, know. it's so hard. So, but it's not (laughs) John. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Talking about Mel Robbins, maybe the episode on motivation. (laughs) Have you ever thought that, uh, maybe it's not that hard. Oh, shut up. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) Is it really hard or is it just that it's, too hard. It's, it's probably too hard. 
That's probably what it is. Uh, you mentioned you were uh, a nonprofit consultant. What yeah. ultimately made you make the leap to become executive director of this organization? Yeah, the pandemic hit. And I have wanted to live in Colorado my whole life. I saw a PBS special when I was like five years old. And I'm like, I'm moving there. And wow. um, yeah, and one day I'm going to do this. It was at the time that I thought I'm ready for this. Like, I really want to give what I have learned um, in this current job to an organization that I feel really strongly about. I didn't know what it would look like. I just kind of started looking and my wife was like, yeah, Colorado sounds great. If you find something that you feel like is worth it, we'll do it. And um, I found the blue bench. I looked at so many jobs. I was like, no, that's not for me. That's not for me. And when I saw it posted on LinkedIn, I went to my wife and I said, I think I have to apply for this. The job description reads like it's written for where I am in my life right now. And I decided to chalk it up to... Um, I'm a spiritual person. I'm a Jesus follower. I decided to just be like, okay, Hey God, I'm going to follow this. And I am big on intuition. I have, I feel like I have the gift of discernment. So I'm going to really lean into that. And every interview felt so validating and connected. And the one question I had to really wrestle with was having had my own trauma. Can I do this? Mm, Sure. Can I carry the I believe that we are given that some people are given the gift of carrying like bigger burdens. Um, we give our burdens over to the higher power, but we also carry them for other people. Is that something that I can do here? And um, I decided, yeah, this is a chance I'm going to take. It felt really good. Everything aligned. And Colorado, I mean, nobody can see my hat, but it says Colorado makes I mean, me happy. We, we've got it. We'll, we'll have a photo that, okay, that goes with this. It'll be yeah. on a companion blog piece. I wear this almost every day. Because it does. It has been a part of my healing journey, a part of me healing my trauma from a young child, from high school, from a young adult. I don't know that I could have done all that without having been a part of this organization. So it's really been a gift to me. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And that's so beautiful to hear. You, You mentioned some people have the gift of carrying larger burdens. Yeah. I had a man on this show. His name is Skylar, who w- became my mentor. I teach boot camp for new dads, mm, which is such a such a cool thing to do. But he said, I have the gift of confession. Mm. And so he gets up in front of all of these expectant dads, and, like probably multiple times a week at this point, and tells them all the ways he was a shitty father. Mm. Like early Reflection. on. Reflection. Yeah, because he didn't take boot camp for new dads. He goes, I don't need to do that. Like, yeah, it's not for me. And then it turns out it very much was for him. And he's like the main guy here in Colorado, like the instructor. And wow. he, he talks about how he used to get angry and how he worked through that. And here's what you can expect to feel. Mm-hmm. You know, learn from me. And he said, I'm happy to tell that. And he's like, I call that the gift of confession. Yeah. I thought, what an interesting way of putting it. Confession. It's a gift of reflection, being yeah. able to say... Here's where I failed and where I've tried to be better. And now I'm going to pass that along to you. Just like we were talking earlier. You've yeah. got to call your buds out on that kind of stuff. Yeah. As dads, you've got to share with others what you learn from your mistakes. Right. Yeah. I find I feel better. Like this is a weird way of putting it, but like I'll rip myself open on this show. Like I don't care. Yeah. You know, like it. I love that. As, lo- as long as we're all trying to be better. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if that's a point for the good. I remember talking I wrote extensively about my wife and my wife's and my infertility journey. Mm-hmm. That will challenge your marriage. That will challenge yourself. That will challenge almost everything about you. And yeah. when I wrote about it, people came out of the woodwork and it's like, man, I went through this too. And I, 
all of a sudden I felt like I wasn't alone. I go, oh, I get it now. Yep. So that's kind of what you're describing. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we adopted my daughter, our daughter, when she was 12. And she's just an incredible human. Thank God. She's 22 um, awesome. now. I know. But we went through extensive parenting classes in order to be able to adopt. And most of the people in our class had already been parents. They were like, why didn't someone give us this class before we gave birth <laughs> to our first child? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the things that we don't know, it's going and goes back to prevention. The things that we don't know yeah. when we have kids that we could be helping them along the way, it's because no one told us. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and, the, and the cycle continues. You yes. Know? So that, I mean, that's one reason I love an organization like Bootcamp for New Dads, because mm-hmm. in, in this case, dads are often an overlooked part of the the parenting process. Absolutely. And there's there's no one giving them guidance. And so again, using that privilege, like we're all guys in here. Like literally we're all men. Yeah. There are no stupid questions. There's no I mean, this is such a weird I'm looking for the right word. Like cliche, statistic, mm-hmm. joke. I can't remember in what context I heard it. But a man's biggest fear when it comes to women is that a woman's going to embarrass him, right? Mm. And I heard this joke from a female comedian. She's like, I read that in a survey somewhere. You know what a woman's biggest fear about a man is? It's that he's going to fucking kill us. Right? Yeah. And so... Yes. (laughs) And so, like, I heard that and I go, oh, boy, that's eye-opening. Yeah. Right? So, but I thought of that because it's like, you're in a group of all men. You can ask any question you want without Mm -hmm. fear of getting embarrassed. That's right. And so the fact that they can do that makes them better dads and you help break that cycle. Yes. So I also that, that quote bums me the hell out because. Oh yeah. It's, it's terrifying. You know what I thought you were going to say is like women's biggest fear is that a man won't love them, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And that's like the surface fear. The deep fear is that you are not who you say you are and I'm not going to wake up tomorrow. Yeah. Like, Thanks for all of the, you know, true crime podcasts and shows that are Jesus, out now. Yeah. That's not helping, you know, right. anybody. But you're right. Like, our fears are different. And when you can get together as men and not feel like you're going to get embarrassed, yeah. um, you can talk about that fear. Mm-hmm. You, John, can bring up, hey, I heard the statistic. Is this all true for you all? Here's what, here's what your wives are thinking. Here's what yeah. the daughter that you're about to bring into this world is going to feel at the age of 14. Right. We have a chance to stop that. We have a chance to change that. Yeah, it's hard. But I like to use my position of privilege because I have this show that I'm very proud of, that I'm very happy to do, to highlight work like yours. It's a great show. Thank you. That's incredibly meaningful to me. What I want to do is highlight the work like yours. So I'm happy to do the show here. What is next for the Blue Bench? And then... Once you once you tell me sort of where would you like to go, mm-hmm. right, as an organization, mm-hmm. you've you've sort of outlined the problems tactically, step by step. What are some of the next things on your horizon? Yeah. Um, I mean, ultimately, we want a world without violence. Of course. You know, we want a Metro Denver that people feel safe to report um, and that one day reporting doesn't matter. That's not going to happen in our lifetime. Right. But the ways that we get there are some pretty significant ways. We've got to provide more therapy and mental health services. You know, we have a mental health crisis um, in our country right now, and um, and there's more that Denver can do to support people who have experienced violence. So, you know, our our long-term plan is we, we need more money. We need to figure out really creative and sustainable ways to do that. Um, so one of the things we really want to do is expand our prevention programming Um, We want to be in every school. We want to work with every school district to prioritize, not mandatory, 
but scheduled regular prevention education in schools. That is probably our biggest goal. That is the biggest thing to overcome. We, it is not for lack of trying. I've uh, testified at school board meetings. We've written um, an open letter that was published letter to the editor. We've reached out to every school. They are not letting us in. Ugh. Yet, we are getting calls from schools saying, we've got kids that are protesting because their uh, head of the football team or their valedictorian are alleged perpetrators and they're, and these kids are mad, so they're going to do a walkout. And it's like, did you hear what you said? Yeah, you missed the prevention window here. Yeah, like first, we tried to get in front of you, but also it's your valedictorian. Yeah. And they're allegedly sexually assaulting girls in schools and they're going to speak on stage at their graduation. We're not going to help you stop these kids from protesting. Mm. That's not our role. Our role is to believe survivors and support survivors. So if these young people need support, we're here for you. Yeah. But we're not here to tell you whether or not these kids can protest because you just identified the problem yourself. Right. And we're, we're not going to whitewash this for you either. That's right. We are here to help you prevent, yeah. not deal with something that you as an institution have not been able to handle because we could get into all the issues of title nine and what the previous administration put in place that are presenting these challenges to schools and students. Mm -hmm. That's a whole nother conversation. Um, So that's why our big plan is to expand prevention. Yeah. Stop the cycle. Now we need a lot of help doing that. Awesome. Yeah. Well, tell people where they can go to help, where they can donate, where they can get involved. Yeah. Anything you want to plug, the floor is yours. Thank you. So um, thebluebench.org. That is um, where you start. And um, I think it is really important to right up front say we have a 24-hour hotline. So even if listening to this podcast has triggered something for one of your listeners, give us a call 24-7-303-322. 7273. We also have that line in Spanish and it is on our website. Um, if you've experienced an assault and you need to go to the hospital, call us. We will meet you at the hospital. An advocate will join you and walk you through that journey. If you need therapy, case management, start with that hotline. Give us a call. Um, we really are here to start where the survivor needs to start. We're going to start by listening. We're going to start by believing that someone has had an experience, and we're going to help you navigate that, okay? Um, We've got events throughout the year, so if you want to show up for the Blue Bench, we have a beer event, Change on Tap, in October. It's awesome. It's so much fun. Sounds cool. Yeah. You'll be there, John. Of course. Um, If you're into golf, we have a golf tournament, but our big campaign just wrapped. April is Sexual Assault Awareness and Prevention Month. And so um, we do a lot of like give back nights, webinars, um, social media videos and stuff. So if you just want to get engaged, just start by looking at what we're the content that we're putting out there and read it. Yeah. Because anybody that wants to be involved with our organization needs to understand the baseline of where survivors are coming from. And we're trying to educate people. We need a lot of volunteers for our hotline. If you have the time to give. Call that hotline. We'll give you the resources on how to look at um, volunteering and sign up. But if you have the heart to help survivors, we can train you and give you the tools that you need to answer those calls and be that support for someone. That sounds fantastic. What I'm going to do is I'm not only going to put links to all that in the companion blog piece. It'll also be in the show notes no matter what platform you're listening on, whether it's iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Audible. Um, I'm going to copy and paste what you said about if this conversation has triggered you Mm -hmm. to something. I'm just going to lift that out, 
put it in the intro of this as well Great. so that people can hear directly from you and then they'll hear it again just now. Highly recommend that. So before yeah. we even get into this, yeah. let's put that right up front yeah. too. So Yeah, this this conversation can be triggering for someone who's experienced Certainly. sexual assault. So I really appreciate you putting that up front. Yeah, 100%. Well, Megan... This is an organization that I am thrilled to continue to support and highlight you here finally. And it's been lovely getting to connect with you. And I cannot wait till our paths cross again. Until that happens, I wish you nothing but continued success. John, this was fun. I love talking about our work. And I really appreciate that you've supported us and that you're highlighting the work that we're doing. Um, It's really important. It's really necessary. And um, it's people like you who are going to help us change the conversation. I am but one, but I will try my hardest. So thank you, Megan. Yeah, thank you. And that'll do it for episode 328 of the John of All Trades podcast with Megan Carvajal, executive director of the Blue Bench. Proud to support them. Proud to highlight their work. Please give them some money. Get involved. The work they're doing is vital. And folks like me and you can help make it possible. The John of All Trades podcast is a production of Deft Communications. Check out Deft on the web, D-E-F-T-C-O-M.us. I do training, content, engagement, and podcasting. So basically, a suite of PR activities. So, trying to communicate more or better or differently, I can help you do that. D-E-F-T-C-O-M.us. Our sponsor is 4Degrees. The number 4, D-E-G-R-E.es. Anything you're doing online, 4Degrees can help you do that better. Whether it's a campaign, a candidate, a good, a service, a product, whatever it is. If you're communicating online through email, through social media platforms, through the larger online world, 4Degrees can help you get your message right and then get it in front of the people who need to see it most. Number 4, D-E-G-R-E.es. Social media is a place you can find me. J-O-A-T pod is the handle for Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest, and Instagram. Episode previews go up on Mondays. New episodes drop on Wednesdays. Pod catchers everywhere. That'll do it for this week. Had a great time talking with Megan. Got another great show lined up for you. Content train just keeps on rolling. Thrilled to bring you this content. I love what I do. I hope you do too. And wherever you are, please take care of yourselves. And until I hear you again, say goodnight, Gracie. That's good, Johnny.